This is Bonjour Chai, the so long, farewell, au revoir edition. I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal, and I'm here with Melissa Lansman in Toronto and Alana Zakon in Vancouver. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's episode, we will be talking to David Bernstein, the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, as well as sadly wishing a fond farewell to our very own soon-to-be member of parliament, Melissa. I certainly hope so, but uh, this has been fun. I'm uh, I am so happy that this uh, that this exists because there's there's frankly nothing like it on uh, on the Canadian scene in terms of um, you know proud Jews talking about things that have happened right here in our country in the uh, in the Jewish community, um, and I'm glad to have been part of the the beginnings of this, and I know that it's only going to uh, to the sky. And my only regret. My only regret here's I'm here's here's the regret. I have not actually met Avi and Alana in person. I I actually have no idea how tall they are. Um, so I how tall do you think we are? Yeah, I, you know I, I don't know. We just we just kind of sit here on uh, on camera. I've, I've never even really seen any any kind of standing. Um, mm. I'm actually standing right now. Oh, are you? Well, then you're <laughs> actually a lot shorter than I thought. Yeah, I'm pretty short. <laughs> I. I have a friend who talks about like tall person energy or short person energy. So it's like, what vibe do you give off as a person as opposed to how tall you actually are? There you go. I don't know how tall you are either. How tall is everybody? Are we having I'm this kidding. conversation? Well, how tall do you do you think I am? There we go. We can go on. Only and on in about centimeters this. because we're Canadian. <laughs> how has it been for you, Melissa, uh, juggling your campaign with the podcast? Well, well, not good because I'm usually the one that doesn't respond to uh, any kind of uh, story ideas or, or 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 really give anything to uh, to the beginnings. This the, I got to tell our listeners that this podcast is 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 very much. Um, sort of driven by uh, by the hosts and our and our producer um, and all of the uh, all of the support and very little of that is uh, is done by me because I'm busy and I'm running uh, we're 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 on the cusp of an election uh, which I am very excited about and I'm hoping to to come back as a uh, uh, as a guest on this podcast if you'll have me. We'll, we'll think about it. Uh, okay. We'll think about it. Unanimous decision. <laughs> there we go. Right on the spot. What Have you heard from like people on the campaign trail about like hearing you on the podcast? Oh, good question. Has it yes, been like- I actually have, um, I've actually been out um, knocking on doors and I do, um, I do a lot of this. I do a lot of radio and I've done a lot of TV um, and particularly in the politics world. So there's some kind of, there's some kind of recognition. Um, but I've run into a couple people saying like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't care what you've done in, in politics. I listen to you on Bonjour High and I, I think it's that. great. Um, and it's, uh, it's amazing. So we've got, uh, we've got a bunch of listeners, um, in, uh, in Thornhill, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll certainly get a couple more cause I, I will still continue to spread, Spread the good word of uh, of what's going on. There's on, only uh, one way that you're going to be able to make it, that happen for us is that when uh, your official bio appears on the uh, you know Canada website, on uh, the government of Canada website, that the 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 immediate thing that says is Melissa Lansman previously served as the co-host for Bonjour Chai. Right. Forget about any of this, you know, PR business. No, that's, any of this stuff. if we that's, can get the word you, high. If that's, if that's on that Canada first Canada line. If that's the first line in your bio, then everybody's going to be scrambling. What is this amazing bonjour high that we've had to like, you know, miss I, out I think on? I can, I can ask and uh, I, I can ask for that to, to happen. I just want, I want to see the word high on, um, on a, on a government website. 
That would make me happy. Fair enough. Though a lot of people seem to think it's chai. I've had people be like, oh, are you talking about tea on your podcast? So Have you guys run into anybody that... Uh, I have a funny you know, story. Well, my, my brother just went to work at camp uh, in Quebec recently and told me that one of his campers is an avid listener of our <laughs> podcast, a child. And he was like, yeah, I know your sister. I listen to her every week. That was unexpected to say the least um yeah i i do have people randomly like message me like oh i heard the podcast and uh and 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 you know they had a comment to say or they're like they're they'll say something that is really just like without even launching into it they're like say something about something that they heard on the podcast as if like i should just assume that right away like my mind is always thinking about the podcast um i i hear is it like thursday night or friday afternoon or so i will always hear from um uh from from your mom alana because I see her in synagogue like every evening and she's like, we heard the podcast. It was a good one. <laughs> so like, you, <laughs> we know that your mom is an avid listener. Oh yeah. My family listens. I actually have like a weekly check-in with like my brother and sister-in-law, my mom. Apparently my aunt is a listener. So shout out to my aunt in Toronto. I, I, when I went to, to visit at one point, she was like, yeah, I listen to your podcast every week. I had no idea. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people get the CJN and uh, so they know. It's the same thing when I released an article that I wrote for the CJN. I sent it to some of my family members and they're like, oh, I already read this this morning. <laughs> well, cool. I look, I will, um, you know, we'll, we'll stop the, the, the farewell. But this is kind of like one of those um, like breakups where you kind of don't want to break up and you hope the other person, that, you know, you're replaced with is kind of... It's, it's not you, it's me. Like You're like, I, I'm leaving you for better horrible, things. horrible, but not really, because you really want them to succeed and you want them to be happy. So I'm having one of those moments right now, and I'm uh, I'm very excited to have uh, to have done this. I'm excited to see um, what uh, what comes next for uh, for Bonjour High, because uh, I think it is something that we absolutely need more of in Canada. If we if we see this as the exit interview, what what has been the uh, the learning experience? Where do you think um, we should be moving towards? Uh, let's hear your. Uh, your expertise and your thoughts before we sign off for good. You know what? I think uh, I think this is the kind of show that has the conversations out loud that you you know you might have at uh, at your at your dinner table or or with your friends. And I think that we 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 live in uh, we live in a world where we can't have these long form conversations or uh, you know out of fear of either or getting canceled or saying the wrong thing. And I think this podcast um, is uh, uh, is a testament to the fact that there's a lot of important issues in uh, in the Jewish community. Some of the are sometimes uncomfortable uh, to talk about, and uh, and I like that this is a venue where uh, where there's no rules, um, and uh, and we can we can hit yeah. anything. Yeah. I know for myself that it, it's nice to. I don't know, I guess as a performer, there's a part of my performer brain that turns on where I'm like, this is real, but it's not really real. Like, there's no repercussion. Like, I could say whatever I want, and Avi's not going to hate me afterwards. Hopefully, anyway, uh, I'm mostly joking, but I. I <laughs> Don't even know where to start with that. <laughs> okay, um, I hate somebody I've never even met face to face. I'm totally kidding. I meant more so that I just, I love the, the ability to be able to argue. I think it's so Jewish. And it's like, I, in my own life, it's actually been allowing me to have more of a voice in my own arguments with people. Because in the past, I used to be so scared about not having like the popular opinion. So I would just keep quiet and not really know what my opinions are. And then this show made me have to speak them and figure out what they were. And I love that we're able to like have those battles. It makes me think of like the popular joke of like, what is it? Uh, two Jews, three, three opinions, you know? 
it's I, such I a think Jewish it's actually thing to debate. What I find fascinating is that I think that the opposite is true for Melissa. Melissa is the person who was never shy <laughs> yeah, of having so an opinion, true. and Bonjour Chai <laughs> has allowed her to stop and be quiet and listen to other people. Whoa! <laughs> well, I'm going to continue listening uh, to this podcast. Um, I, and we uh, hope to have you on as a guest. Absolutely. We, you will be our resident conservative pundit on, uh, you know, whenever you need to uh, say something um, or whenever we have questions about that. Um, we thank you for your many, many months of service and uh, we'll finish out the episode and uh, we hope to see you again soon. And maybe we'll all meet face to face in Toronto at some point in the future at your swearing in ceremony maybe. in Ottawa or something like that. Maybe. Before we get to our main guest, let us hear from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom design jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. About a month ago, uh, David Bernstein came across our radar after having written a piece at Quillette uh, entitled Standing Up to the Social Justice Mobs Within the Jewish Community. Uh, in it, he talked about the difficulties he faced when he encountered woke culture and critical social justice. David is the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values and previously served as the executive director of the David Project and president and CEO of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs. David, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Let's get started by just, um, you know, I want to move in the direction of social ju- um, of social media in general. Um, how do the echo chambers that we have within social media um, play into this, right? Are there ideas that you think get amplified improperly or, um, you know, people are afraid to speak up within social media with their names on and only they do so anonymously? How does, you know, what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, social media clearly is one of the factors that's driving this polarization that we're experiencing, I'm sure in Canada and certainly in the US, um, where we're able to create, we're able to curate our own news. Obviously, I do it too. You know, I, I create a social media list on Twitter and I follow the people I follow. And then I'm, I, I find myself in an ideological bubble and I really have to work hard to find people who disagree with me so I can hear their views as well. And I don't get trapped in a groupthink dynamic. I think that's happening writ large in society and that that is um, driving people to behave and think in a certain way. Um, it also obviously brings out a certain kind of behavior. Twitter itself and its in its limited number of characters is a specific kind of format. So people will behave in a really shrill way on Twitter. But if you brought them on a podcast like this, they may actually be completely reasonable human beings. So I think the anonymity that you can get from Twitter, I think the format of Twitter and the fact that we're able to curate our own news bubbles is driving this kind of discourse that's really bad for society. David, I'll jump in here because I think I'm the panel analyst that agrees with, uh, with with you most here. Um, and I see it as, you know, Jews don't count. You're, you, you're, you don't fit within the, the, the ethnic minority framework of, uh, of identity politics, be it on, on, on Twitter or, or more generally. So if we're not oppressed enough and you become the oppressor, what's the in-between that you see? 
Because that that part I didn't get. Yeah, I think the, that that's a really good question. How do we sort of stake out the in between? And I think we can do, we can try to do it, but it's hard. It's a very illiberal ideological environment right now. The in between is to say we get it. There's racism in society. There's bigotry in society, and we have to be able to give voice to that. We've experienced ourselves, and we know that this society, our societies, have a long way to go in living up to their own ideals. That said, we also believe that these societies are at this point in time. The best humanity has to offer in many ways. There are, there are places where people can succeed. There are places where there is upward mobility, no matter where you come from. Again, that does, it's not perfect, and it doesn't mean everybody has equal shot at the uh, at success. But we we know that these are these are basically societies you can work with, and and we think that the narrative. I think we Jews can say not everyone well, but we we should try to stake out that territory that 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 we Jews can say um, that we have work to do in these societies, but we but we don't believe that they're pervasively supremacist or racist. I think it gets a little bit nuanced for me personally, because uh, without getting too, too much into the into the racial uh, topic, I guess, is that my personal perspective as an Ashkenazi Jew who has light skinned is that I have a conditional privilege. And I've had this conversation with a lot of other uh, friends of mine who are both uh, mo mostly uh, other Jewish friends of mine, including Jews of color. Um, and so I think it does get a, a little bit wishy-washy in, in that sense, because walking down the street, unless I was um, an, an ultra-Orthodox person or um, a, a man wearing a kippah or something like that, people wouldn't necessarily know that I'm Jewish. And so I think in that sense, we do have a bit of that conditional privilege, because if they did know I was Jewish, obviously, I wouldn't get treated the same way. So I think in terms of um, recognizing anti-Semitism, I'm on the same page as as what Melissa and, and you have said in, in your work. Um, but I think that we do still have a responsibility to um, recognize that we do have more privilege than others. And so when it comes to social media, it becomes tricky, because you look at these Facebook groups where it's just um, all Jewish people of, let's say, uh, one specific political leaning, and it does really become an echo chamber where there's very little room to have those discussions. So I, I, my question, I guess, is more, are, are are there parts of social media for the Jewish community that are positive, or or you think it's all all harmful? Like, what are everyone's feelings on this topic? Do, do, if, if you want me to start, I'll just say that um, I'm, I'm, by the way, half Sephardic Jew. My mom is from Iraq. I grew up in a household that spoke Arabic and and um, and and grew up with different kinds of foods than most Jews uh, in in the United States certainly did. Um, I'm not sure. I quite honestly, Ilana, I buy the whole thing with privilege. There's no question that white people have privilege in certain contexts. I, I believe that, and I've certainly been born with certain advantages that others don't have. But I, I think it's too much of a fixed discourse, and I don't think it's quite um, as you're presenting. I think that 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 um, that yes, um, being white might be a net advantage for. For most people, but I don't think it's quite as as you're suggesting. I, I, and I'm grateful for the conversation, by the way. I've been, I've, I've, over time, changed my views on these issues, and that's why I think this kind of discourse is so very important. I think, look, I think Jews should engage in social media just like everybody else. Twitter is too powerful of a tool to sort of say, well, it brings out the worst in people, so I'm going to sit on the sidelines. Um, I think we have to make sure our voices are heard wherever they are on on all sorts of issues that we talk about anti-Semitism, that we talk about racism, and that we also talk about what it means to uh, create a li li and live in a liberal society. For sure. But do, do you all feel that 
that social media is effective because my own personal experience, going back to what you were saying about the anonymity, is that I think when people have that cloak, it's really easy to just like drive uh, an argument to the ground with little to go a little grandiose with a little respect sometimes, I think, for others. And I've personally, I've been attacked before for standing up for Israel um, and for anti-Semitism online. Um, so I just question whether that is the best platform for the Jewish community to be fighting these issues. What What do you all think? It's it's a little strange because, you know, even if I, I agree, um, and I think that there's difficulties and there are what I might think of potentially insurmountable difficulties um, with social media, that is where everybody is. You know, it's like, I, I you know, there's a book that uh, Jerome Jer- Jer- Lanier came out with. He, uh, a couple of years ago, he's a pioneer in virtual reality. And he wrote uh, this book, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Profiles, right? And, and, and they're very compelling. And I get that there's problems with what's going on in the, in the world of social media. But at the end of the day, um, I can't delete that because I run my own nonprofit organization. And the only way that I'm going to get the message out to people within the Jewish community even about any programs that I have is to be on social media. Sometimes the only place that we have to talk about things is online, right? And so these echo chambers that David's talking about or that we've been talking about are, uh, you know, it's it's sort of a vicious circle. We don't have a choice to be in them. We don't have a choice to, to really opt out. Yeah, look, I'm uh, I'm I'm with you. I, I don't think that we run in a world with, uh, uh, without it. But uh, I think to your earlier point, the notion that, you know, Jews have to understand that they've got some kind of uh, privilege. This is one of the oldest anti-Semitic tropes there are. Um, you know, if you come to this country from, uh, in, in the case of of, uh, of my family, from the former Soviet Union, where you were called uh, a dirty Jew, I'm, I'm not sure that I agree with the the, the notion of, uh, uh, of privilege. But if you're not going to go sort of door to door and hustle uh, on, uh, on every point that you make, Social media is the only place um, to have that conversation, and whether that conversation is uh, is deep or uh, uh, or, or not, uh, it's there. It's our tool, uh, and it's been one of the greatest tools uh, to reach the maximum amount of people. Something that's coming to my mind around privilege, just to I guess make sure that I am making my own perspective clear uh, to myself and to you. I don't I don't think that when our ancestors came, especially, you know, because my, my great, great grandparents were immigrants from the pogroms in that sense. No. And, and, and we don't, we didn't have privilege then. And I don't think that my grandparents did. And I've heard uh, lots of terrible stories of how they were treated in Quebec. And I think right now we're, we're in a different reality. And I don't know if any of you have read the book, how Jews became white folks and what that says about race in America. But I, I perused bits and pieces of it. And I, I think it does speak a lot to what the reality is that we have to face, whether it's real or not, is that after World War II, Jews who were lighter skinned were lumped into a category of being white. And I personally don't like to call myself white. I like to use the word white passing or light skinned because I think it's a much more nuanced and I do believe that being Jewish is an ethnicity. Um, but I think now we live in this reality where from the outside, people might treat us the same way that we that another person who definitely does have full, full privilege, like someone who maybe comes from like a white Anglo-Saxon background that's always been able to live their lives freely in a different way than Jews have or other um, like Greeks, Italians who experienced oppression when they moved here. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that right now we do live in in the reality that evolved since World War II. And we have to address that. So you take it for granted that the racism that you're 
that you're describing is true. And, and I, I don't. Um, I think that there are whites, by the way, who live in poor areas um, in West Virginia and Ohio, where I grew up, who have very, very little privilege. Now, if they were black, would they have less privilege? Probably not. They're living in opioid infested communities. Their whiteness gets them nowhere. Um, and and I think that it's it's not a very healthy discourse because I think it, it it creates a lot of resentment among people. But I also just don't think it's 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 always true. Something can be sometimes true and not always true. So um, again, like I, I think yes, there are contexts, social contexts in which if you are white and you have grew up with a lot of money and you grew up with all the advantages in the world, you can talk about the privilege that you had. Um, and by the way, there are obviously African-American kids. You know, today, two thirds of, of black folks live in the middle class or above. It's not like, you know, we're talking about, when we speak of black people, we're talking about people who all live in the inner city. I mean, there, there's people who have completely succeeded on the American scene. Their children might have more advantages than poor white kids. And I just think it's a very sure. limiting discourse. And I don't think it describes everything we, it, it, it pretends to. I have more to say, but go for it, Abby. I, I'm sorry, I'm going to push back a little bit on here, on this. We as a community, sure. right, not even, maybe not we, but the, the generalized Jewish community is so always focused on you don't get to decide what anti-Semitism is. We want the IRA definition of anti-Semitism to be adopted. We want to tell you that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. You don't tell me what that is because we are the definers of anti-Semitism. And you're here going to the uh, African-American African-American community, the BIPOC community, and saying, you don't get to decide what racism is. I get to decide what racism is. Critical race theory is not, you know, a problem. Even though you tell me that that is part of racism, right, I'm going to tell you that I don't want to be part of that and I want to define for you. How, how, how is that fair? First of all, we no one gets to define anything for anybody else. Let me start there. We all are free people. Um, I, I, yes, I will talk about the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. I think it's a good definition for governments to look at when they study anti-Semitism. But I don't get, as a Jew, and I've been fighting anti-Semitism my entire professional life, I don't get to define anti-Semitism for you, Avi, and you don't get to define it for me, and certainly we don't get to define it for anybody else. And likewise, I reserve the right to disagree with certain Black folks about racism and agree with other Black folks, like my friends at Free Black Thought, um, about, about racism. Um, I don't, I'm an individual and I get to decide for myself what racism is. And I think I've written about this. I wrote a piece called who gets to decide what's racist. And, um, and I think this idea, which is called standpoint epistemology or standpoint theory, that, that only those who experience, who have the lived experience of racism get to define it is just not true. I mean, it's, we, we, we're, um, in some ways, the fact that I've experienced rampant anti-Semitism growing up can actually blind me to the fact that America loves Jews by and large, for example. Um, you know, if you look at the uh, if you look at some of the surveys of, of how Jews are largely perceived, I, it's easy for me to overstate anti-Semitism because I've experienced it. So there's two kinds of myopia, the kind of myopia of being part of something and the kind of myopia from being far away from something. And I think um, and that's why I just don't buy this whole thing about we get to define anti-Semitism or somebody else gets to define racism. We live in a liberal society. It's interesting. I mean, I, I... I think that what you're saying has some truth to it, but I the, the piece that I'll flip back, if we're going to use an epistemological approach, is I'd say that we, we need to include at some point an existential approach as well, or a phenomenological approach to say um, you can't fully define what racism is unless you have in some way experienced, right? You have to account for that in some way. Right. 
and you include those voices in the conversation. So I've learned a tremendous amount from Black people about what they've experienced, like a young Black person who experienced harassment from cops. I'm grateful that I have those friendships where I'm able to hear those narratives. It's just not a complete picture. And so we should lift up those voices, but we shouldn't allow, we, we don't need to automatically defer to those voices either. And I think that's what we do in a liberal society. We hear people, we process what their experiences are, we include those in, but it's, it's one data point. It's not the only data point. I, wanted, um, I just want to move the, the, the discussion back to, to, to the original article and, and where, you, you know, where you land as a, uh, as a Jew in, uh, in progressive circles. And if you call yourself a, a Zionist because you fled a country in the Middle East, you're, you're complicit in ethnic cleansing, or if you've escaped a, a concentration camp, uh, you're, a, you know, you're a colonialist, or if you make Aliyah, uh, you're complicit in in a uh, in apartheid, how like, how do you see how do you see that as anything other than anti-Semitism? I mean, I think we're on the same page on that front. That's for sure, yeah. Melissa. I mean, I I think that that probably is anti-Semitism. It's it's a not just a double standard because not every double standard is anti-Semitic, but it's sort of a a, a malicious anti uh, double standard that's meant to deny me of my agency or deny you of your agency. And I think that that is properly categorized as as anti-Semitism. Again, it doesn't end the conversation. If someone tells me um, I'm I'm a Palestinian and therefore I'm anti-Zionist, I'm not necessarily going to view them as a hater. I understand they've had their own dis distinct experience with Zionism. And I think we can we don't have to treat them as if they're uh, categorically uh, Jew haters. I just think. Um, but but I think writ large in society, that's that's a that that does point to anti-Semitism. As a you know, as a as somebody who might hold progressive ideology, I probably don't find myself in that uh, in that category too often. Where do you where do you end up if you're not you know if you're not invited to the party? We have to create our own party. Um, we have to start inviting friends. I, I spent I spent some time. Um, I spent some time. Um, I, I today I'm meeting with multiple Chinese American leaders um, who who um, one care deeply about the larger society and two are worried about their place in it, given this idea that they're being accused of being white adjacent or complicit in white supremacy, or that their kids are being displaced in the current educational environment and what have you. We, there are new friends to be had. It's it's an uphill battle. It's not fun. I'd rather fit in neatly to one of the political parties and feel better about where I stand in in, in the in North America today, but that's not where we are. There's certainly a lot of, of layers to all of this, I think. I, I don't think it's such a black and white situation. Yeah, but I mean, Look, we Melissa doesn't like when we go and say we try to divorce anti-Zionism from anti-Semitism. Um, you know, but maybe that's because Melissa is a card-carrying conservative. It's not that uh, I don't like it. Liberal. It's just that I think it's not true, and it's bonkers. And if we subscribe to that idea, uh, then then we are we are part of the problem. But then, but then you're writing out right, and 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 maybe David, you know, maybe I do agree with David on this point, right? You can't. Um, you know, then you're writing out people who are Jewish, who are saying, right, I am not anti-Semitic or people that are not Jewish. I am not. I love Judaism. I love Jews. I just think that there is some Zionism that is problematic. Go ahead, David. Can't we make a distinction between the phenomena of anti-Zionism and the fact that there may be individual cases where people uh, um, either don't understand Zionism and what it means, or um, or think that that there shouldn't be a Jewish state, but are not 
hostile to Jew, the Jewish people. I mean, am I going to really say that the Satmar Hasid are anti-Semites? Um, you know, you I've argued that point on this podcast um, multiple times. Right. Yeah. Apparently, it's not a good enough point for some people. Right. I just don't think we should obsess with a question. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's it's yeah. a fun question to ask. Um, it's it's it's. I think it's Melissa is right that it's true that anti-Zionism as a phenomena is problematic and and probably motivated largely by anti-Semitism, and we should study it and understand it as such without obsessing about whether somebody in one particular person or other or is anti-Semitic because they have certain. So view. why can't we extend that argument in the same way to uh, critical race theory and to say that there's probably some truth to it? Um, you might think that there is difficulties with making it a central part of, you know, uh, an educational curriculum, but to to write it out and to actively oppose, you know, ideas behind critical race theory is is also a problem, which we see within the Jewish community as well. I, I do not oppose. I'm not, I'm not saying I, you. I, I have learned from, I know, I just want to make clear. I actually think that critical race theory is an important way to... A lens through which one can look at these dynamics. Um, critical race theory or critical social justice um, holds two different things. One is that bias and oppression are embedded in the systems of society, and two that those people affected by uh, by it have a unique insight into it. That's the standpoint of epistemology. I would say that it is true that bias can be embedded in the structure of society, but not is not always the case. And that people who are affected adversely by these systems um, may have insight that the rest of us don't, but don't always. And that's why we need liberalism. That's why we need to be able to debate these things that, like we're doing right here. And, and, and so that we all can sort of understand when that might be the case and when it's not the case. Unfortunately, that second pillar, the idea of standpoint epistemology, that only the adversely oppressed can, can articulate a view and define it, tries to silence people from actually engaging in that conversation. I think that's the root of the problem. I, I, this is a conversation that I've had with many people, and I still don't even really have a, a conclusion. But I think what coming back to the notion of, of privilege. Um, and I do agree with some of the things that you're saying in the sense that I do think that Jewish voices do often get pushed to the side. And I don't think that's okay. And I very much, uh, I feel very passionately about standing up against anti-Semitism, especially when it comes to uh, notions about Israel um, and just in general about not getting pushed to the side. But I think the problem that's rooted in society is that we do have these systemic issues that are built especially into North America, and I can't speak to the rest of the world because I haven't lived outside of North America. So I just question whether if there was a room of people that was pretty diverse, who would get more space to speak? And if some of those groups that are often pushed down because of systemic racism, sexism, or whatever else, uh, would really have equal amounts of space. If we lived in a perfect world and really everyone had their equal say, I think that would be extremely constructive. I'm just not convinced based off history that we have that space accessible to us right now. And you see that I work in the film industry and I, things are changing a lot. And I hear a lot of people saying like, oh, it's reverse racism. But the truth of the matter is that a lot of my friends of color were only auditioning for really stereotypical roles. And if we don't try to push that space open 
for, you know, eventually things to hopefully balance out, then I don't know that a change will happen. And I don't know any other way that we can do that, you know, and I, I myself don't know a solution. Right. P push then push to, to change that. Right. Like I'm I'm with you 100 percent if people are being discriminated against. I also know, by the way, in the Jewish community um, where I've spent my life, I could not have brought in a black conservative voice to to talk about a different view on race and racism or privilege um, and, and had them in that discussion because because we only want to hear from a certain uh, category of people about these issues right now. So it really depends on context. I think um, in the end, I want to be able to um, debate, disagree and maybe agree about whether or not it's racism in the film industry that's holding people down or not. I, I may come to your to agreement with you, but I, I want to hear all the ideas and I want to be able to be a devil's advocate and so forth. And I think that's being stifled now. And it's not healthy. It's actually not healthy for for the minorities that it's negatively affecting because it doesn't allow us to really hear their view. We end up being polarized in social media bubbles like we've been talking about. So if I can wrap it up a bit, um, I'm always I'm always concerned about the way forward and moving forward. And I think that one of the things that seems to be missing here, um, whether we're talking about anti-Semitism from the inside or whether we're talking about critical race theory from the outside or critical social justice, um, is that um, we often lose that potential for hearing somebody saying, I'm with you most of the way, except for blank. And all we hear is the except for blank and automatically assume that that person is an anti-Semite or is an anti, you know, or is racist or whatever it is. How do we get that message across to whatever community we're talking to and saying, I don't oppose critical social justice, right? Or I don't, I, I recognize that anti-Semitism is an issue, right? But I want to be critical about certain things and not see it as, opposing the totality of everything that you stand for, um, of, of validating what the other's experience is or validating what the other position is while being able to still have a, a dialogue that is constructive other than just saying, you know, as you wrote in the article, we have a responsibility to sit and listen and not to critique. Yeah, it's it's a challenge. And look, I can, I, I'm as guilty as everyone else at times of falling into that trap and not setting out the right vibes that I want, which is I'm really open to this conversation and I could be wrong at any moment about any of it, about my diagnosis of how much racism there is or how much privilege there is. Um, but I think that ultimately that operating system of liberalism that allows those conversations to happen as freely as possible in good faith, I'm not talking about people who want to demean others, but in good faith is what will allow us to have the most possible understanding in society. So I want to do my part and I'm going to work at it not to put up those walls to those conversations, Avi, that you just spoke of. but. Um, but I think there's a lot of walls being put up right now. and We've got to try to bring some of them down. Thank you so much, David Bernstein, um, the uh, director of the uh, uh, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. Um, you can find it online at where? JILV.org. JILV.org. Thank you again and uh, hope to speak to you soon. Thanks a lot. Great to talk to you all. Our rabbinic voice this week is Rabbi Gila Kane of Temple Beth Ora in Edmonton. Okay, yes. So Rosh Chodesh is very special. All Rosh Chodeshim are very special. All Rosh Chodesh. And we, I think one thing we need to work on more in our generation is making Rosh Chodesh back into an actual festival. And not just a day with some additional prayers. But um, Rosh Chodesh is very special in that it's actually one of the four Rosh Chodeshim, one of the four new months um, recorded in the Mishnah as being special. We have Tishrei, 
and we know that from Rosh Hashanah. Uh, we have Nisan, uh, where we celebrate actually Pesach, and we have Shvat, uh, where after some debate between Shammai and Hillel, they, they decided on the 15th, but actually also the first one could have been the New Year for trees. Um, and then we have Rosh Chodesh Elul, um, which appears in the Mishnah as the Rosh Chodesh where you, you, you do the tithing for cattle that was supposed to be sacrificed in the Mikdash, in the temple. Uh, in the same way that the trees that we now celebrate for Tobi Shvat would have been tithed on Shvat. I'm not going to go deeply into that. I'll just say that this prompted in some, um, in some areas in Jewish uh, kind of Jewish thought nowadays, Jewish environmental thought, but in general Jewish thought, uh, the idea of taking Rosh Chodesh Elul and actually turning it into a day where we ponder, think about, celebrate our relationship with the animal world in the same way that we did for Rosh Chodesh Shvat, or to Bishvat with the trees. Um, and it's very apropos for our times, I think, and it's, it's developing more and more. We've already had in the past decade or so uh, celebrations. I did it in Jerusalem, but I know people have been doing it also outside um, in other places. Taking this, the, the month exactly before, the, the day, the month before uh, Tishrei, before the new year, taking that day, the ancient day when we tithe the cattle for the Mikdash, to sit and think about the way that we treat the animal world, uh, our relationship with the animal world, the way that all of this is tied in with creation, um, and how we can get better at it. So that's that's kind of in a nutshell what Rosh Chodesh is becoming. Um, so. Edmonton, <laughs> in Edmonton. Uh, anyway, <laughs> again, um, What's happening? So we're just going to do a, we have done and we will do, and I hope to develop it more and more, um, a service where, Ken, Ken, and we'll order. Yeah, so in my congregation in Edmonton, um, previously we would have like a Kabbalah Shabbat and we would bring in some, you know, textual, liturgical things. Uh, this year, what I'm hoping to do, if we're allowed to gather, etc., etc., um, we've been doing Kabbalot Shabbat and s services outdoors anyway, is to ask people to bring their uh, well-behaved pets with them for that Kabbalat Shabbat. <laughs> no dangerous tigers or anything, but, uh, you know, random dogs and maybe cats, and see how we can incorporate them into the ceremony, into the Kabbalat Shabbat. Um, that's just the very beginning. And I'm hoping, and of course, lit liturgy will be around that and maybe maybe find some readings from Torah that relate to that as well. But uh, but have them when we're celebrating it. And that'll be fun, of course, not just for, for me, but also for the kids and hopefully for other adults. Uh, but then in future years, it would be interesting to do something even more meaningful than just, you know, seeing our pets with us and having them with us, but rather see how we can take that and do something that's actually you know, actually changes something about the way wildlife is in our vicinity. Um, we've started doing that in, uh, in my Kehila in Temple Bethora in Edmonton a few years ago when we rewrote the whole kashrut policy for our shul so that it's, it's not only about traditional kashrut but also about uh, environmental kashrut and also animal rights kashrut. So it's not just about liturgy and ritual, although although those are extremely important, but also about, you know, the, the actual halakha of being Jewish.
Let's move on to our Nachas of the Week, where we'd like to highlight something which has come across our radar and given us some Nachas as Jewish Canadians. Alana, what's been giving you Nachas? So I just heard about this new show that uh, I think just got greenlit. Uh, it's called Nice Jewish Girls, which I thought would be a comedy, but it's not. It's a Well, it's somewhat of a comedy. It's darkly comedic. One hour family crime drama. That's a lot of genres rolled into one. About four sisters in the aftermath of a death in the family. They know they would do anything for each other, but come to realize they don't know everything about each other. And it's loosely based off of uh, the writer Annie Wiseband's family members. And I just love seeing Jewish content uh, uh, so that I can... I don't know, see how I feel about it. I kind of like a part of me was like, should I reach out and say, hey, I'm a Jewish actor after all these conversations we've had about Jewish representation on film. Uh, anyway, I'm excited to see what that looks like. It's going to be a Netflix show. Yeah. Melissa, well, give us your nachas. Mine is more of like an aspirational nachas. And I'll tell you, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. I'm, I am so happy that um, uh, baseball has returned and I've gotten sort of my double fill of, uh, of baseballs. So it's not like since the story of the Jamaican bobsled team, which I'm not even entirely sure is true, but made an amazing movie. Um, my two worlds have collided. So like if you've watched uh, Israel's baseball team, um, they were they were in the Olympics. Um, it's a heck of a story about how they got there, uh, competing in Tokyo as one of the six best teams in the world. And the aspirational part of this is that there are no Canadians on the team. The team is, you know, the team is a team sort of built by uh, by New York. Uh, and despite their uh, despite their loss, and they didn't make it through, it was fun to watch. Um, it's fun to get excited about, um, and calling on all Canadians to, uh, to to get on that team. So we have a reason to to bring it back as a as an office in the in the future. Awesome. I have I have a story. Um, so it's not even. I mean, it's. It, I thought I had oh, this no. amazing nachas, and then and then it just fell apart. Um, but I think the the story itself is uh, is the nachas, and I and it'll be a call to action. Um, I was out last night. Um, I was at Bar George, which is uh, this really really. Um, very old school looking bar, British restaurant. I mean, it has all the original wood from the Mount Stephen Club from a couple hundred years ago. It's named after Sir George Stephen. It's just really like one of these establishment yet hip bars in downtown Montreal. Um, and I see a drink on the menu and it's called George's Shiva. Whoa. And I'm like, oh, whoa, I'm ordering that. Right. I'm like, how did they make that? It's about like, you know, it's is it dark? Is it that this is that I had just done a funeral, um, you know, that day. So my mind was in that, you know, uh, you know, mindset. And and so I order it and I'm drinking it. I asked the bartenders, it was like, how did you get to this point? And why is this represent the Shiva of like, you know, George, who was the name of the bar? Well, Shiva's the Shiva's the the destroyer. It's the is the Hindu god of this and that. I was like, oh, man, there goes my nachas. I thought I had this great story about George's. So um so I, I'd like to have a drink uh, that is emblematic of, of a Shiva. And so that is my call to action is let's figure out uh, what a cocktail, uh, the cocktail equivalent of a Shiva looks like, um, because we should be able to have drinks during Shivas. Um, and, uh, you know, let's, uh, it's a revival of Jewish cocktails. And I think that I, I've been making them through the, um, you know, through the pandemic, I was doing all these uh, things called the Jewish Cocktail Lab. Um, and you can check out some of the drinks that we made. But, um, uh, you know, a good cocktail with a good Jewish backbone to it um, is always a good thing. And so that's going to be my nachas um, for uh, for now is let's come up with more drinks. I can get behind have that. You, have you guys, what's been your drink of choice lately all summer? Ooh. Oh, that's it. Oh, that's, my mind is blank right now. But, oh, paper, paper planes. My roommate taught me 
about paper planes and they're amazing. You have paper to planes. It if you haven't, it's a good drink. If you like sweet, alcoholized drinks, I I certainly will. I don't I don't really have a drink of uh, choice other than I think I consume more diet coke than water. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna continue that. I know it's so disappointing. What do you drink when you drink diet coke? That's what you drink. Um, I'm like <laughs> not you know it's it's a mood okay. thing for me. I've I've been I've been hitting the Negronis pretty heavy this summer because they're they're so refreshing and they're so easy to make. Um, I still really want to try uh, your Charoset cocktail that you posted about around Passover. I love Charoset, yeah. and I was like, that sounds like my kind a of drink. cocktail. Next Passover, we will make a Charoset cocktail. Okay. We'll have you back on for that. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Thursday, August 5th. Please note that we will be taking a break for the next few weeks. We will return with the launch of the new CJN website in early September. This website launches September 1st, and we will have an episode on September 2nd. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by so-called We Are a Project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice and let us know what you think about our discussions on the CJN Lounge on Facebook. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Melissa Lansman. And I'm Ilana Zakon. 